title of today's message is Made Alive in Christ. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And we're continuing our Ephesians series this morning. And the little video clip that we just watched from the movie God's Not Dead is a very graphic illustration of the state of those who reject God. One of the major teachings in the Bible is something called the depravity of humanity. And it's not something we talk a lot about today. Most of us, we like to have a positive picture in our mind about our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. We seem to think, well, even if they're not even remotely trying to follow God or remotely religious, they seem to be a, a decent person, so they must be okay in God's eyes. Maybe it's because of where we, grew, where we live today. In West Central Wisconsin, most people here have the nice gene. We don't believe in talking about or bad about other people, particularly to their face. We don't like being confrontational and, and, or saying anything negative to people, even if what they're doing is wrong. We have a tendency to try to be very nice. And it's exacerbated by our current age. We're not allowed to say anything is wrong anymore. Even no matter how ridiculous it may sound. We live in this age of pluralism and not wanting to offend anybody. So we have a tendency now to kind of keep our heads down and our thoughts to ourselves. However, the Bible is very, very specific about the reality of those who refuse to come to Christ, of those who refuse God's word, about those who refuse to um, heed the gospel message. And these aren't good people with simply wrong ideas. They aren't just entitled to their opinion and God will forgive them anyway. They are, as we will see in a few moments, dead men or dead women walking. Or as a TV show would say, the walking dead. So let's look at what God's word has to say this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he may show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's worksmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you help us as we read your word this morning to have a better appreciation of the status 
and the predicament that those who don't follow you are in and the danger they are in of someday being eternally separated from you. Father God, we have too much of a, a tendency to be, to be deceived by the spirit of this age who, want, who just wants us to say, oh, they must be okay. That is not what your word says. So help us to dig into the truth of your word. Help it to define our thoughts, our attitudes. Help it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart and help its truth define what we call good this morning. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So I mentioned a few moments ago that sometimes our desire to be nice will have us play that kind of a mental game. Often, particularly if we like a person who isn't following Christ, we want to just place them into a mental category that says, well, they're nice people, so they must be okay. But as we just read in the Bible, that's not the reality. They are not good people. It's a central thought of Christian theology through the last 2,000 years that humanity, apart from Christ, is dead. You go all the way back to the beginning, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God told Adam, if you rebel against me, if you disobey me in this one thing, and take from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will die. God did not lie. God did not say, you're only going to die a little bit. God did not say it's going to be like a, a paper cut or a sniffle that you're going to get over um, in no time. He said that the soul that sins will die. Dead means dead. Morte, pushing daisies, direct them into the eternal care center. However you want to put it, dead is dead. And this is a condition that you, me, and everyone who has ever been born after Adam and Eve has been born into. That the real you is a spiritual being. It is not this flesh and blood and sinew and brain and everything else. Our spirits inhabit this body. It is not what, he was, what God was talking about. He was talking about a spiritual death that happened at the Garden of Eden and everyone who came after them inherited that death. Think about that for a moment. Everyone who has ever been born is spiritually dead. And if you have not surrendered to Christ, then you are also dead. This is what Christ taught us. This is what he said and why he said, you must be born again. In John 3, verse 5, it says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And the reason that people reject this teaching, this teaching comes straight from Jesus' own mouth, 
is that they want to reject this idea that they were dead in the first place. They say, I seem to be pretty alive right now, but they don't realize again that you are a spirit being inhabiting a physical body. And if you're listening this morning and you have not turned from your sins and been born again, then you're just simply a dead man lumbering toward a grave and an eternal situation that we call hell. Hell is the ultimate expression of God's wrath against sin and rebellion. As Paul said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. God's wrath was against us. And if you're following the world and its ways, you're rejecting God's rulership over your life. And his offer of forgiveness and salvation, which he bought through us through the death and resurrection of his son. By definition, according to what we just read, you're an object of wrath. You are going to drink the cup of his wrath for all eternity. That is after our physical death. But many may ask, well, what about now? Are we under God's wrath? As we as a country, are we as individuals experiencing God's wrath? Well, let's define terms a little bit. There are two primary kinds of God's wrath. The direct wrath of God and the indirect wrath of God. So question, where in the Bible, and I'll hint, it's in the New Testament, Genesis in particular, do we see a direct example of God's wrath? And if you're here on Wednesday, you get to cheat because I told you what it was on Wednesday. The flood, very direct example of God's wrath. What's another really famous one? Two cities. I would say fire and brimstone falling from the heavens is a pretty direct representation of God's wrath. Direct. No, no uh, equivocation there. But what about the indirect? What does that look like? I was thinking about this. Indirect wrath is getting in an argument with your spouse, and then they're not talking to you or wanting to be around you. Anybody here ever experienced that? No. Tammy says no. <laughs> Similarly, God's indirect wrath is simply removing his presence and blessing over your life. And you say, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, consider where it leads. I challenge you to write this down, Romans 1, 18-32, because we're starting to see this on a national level now. We're not going to read it just for time's sake, but what you see in Romans there is a further example of what happens when God's presence is removed from a society. And when God's presence is removed from that society, it gets worse and worse and worse and falls into further degradation and sin. If you don't believe that to be true, how many people would ever have thought 10 years ago we would have male lift weightlifters acting like female weightlifters? 
Anybody would have, you would have laughed me right out of here if I would have said that 10 years ago. But that's what we're seeing in America. You see another example of God's indirect wrath in Ezekiel uh, chapter 10. Now in the Old Testament, they had the actual physical manifest presence of God that existed in the Holy of Holies. If you were in a temple, if this was the temple right now, there'd be a big curtain here. This would be the Holy of Holies, and God's physical presence would be resting here. As soon as you came anywhere near the building, you would feel the weighty presence of God. That is what they were used to and, um, when they worshipped. However, prior to what is described in Ezekiel 10, there's a description of a moral fall of the people. The people had started to turn away from God and get into pagan worship practices. And in Ezekiel 10, it describes God's reaction to them turning their backs on him. The presence of God actually leaves the Holy of Holies and goes to the threshold of the temple. Now God does that to kind of do what you might do to a small child in the store that keeps running away from you. I don't know how many people have, have ever had a parent do this, but I used to take off as soon as I was in a store. I would just take off and go hide in the, um, in the clothing racks and kind of try to play hide and seek with my parents. Well, one day my parents got sick of it, and they stepped back behind something, and when I came out to go peekaboo, they weren't there. And I got in a panic because I couldn't find mom and dad. I, I distinctly remember this. It was at Ward's in Kenosha. And I'm looking around and I can't find them. And I'm in a panic. And then they appear and they say, this is what can happen if you keep running away from me. God kind of does that to us sometimes. When we run away from him is he'll remove his presence like that so that we go, wait a minute, where did God go? However, in the case of Ezekiel, no one noticed. No one noticed that the big pillar of fire and, and, and cloud that existed behind that curtain was gone. Now if you tie Roman, Ezekiel 10 with Romans 1, you can see why we are running straight into God's judgment and why His Spirit and blessing has left our nation. You see, God's direct, indirect wrath is meant to save us from his direct wrath. God pulling back from us is a blessing in a way because it makes us see that he has left the building of our hearts. He has left the um, so that we can say, wait a minute, where did God go? And we turn around and pursue him and figure it out. And now talking about God not being or not blessing America is kind of a heavy topic. And I know when I talk about this, you might feel a little bit of twisting in your gut when you think about it. Maybe you have some little sins in your life that you've been tolerating and you're starting to get a little worried about that. But that's a good thing. Because God may be using that indirect wrath to draw you back to him. Because it's then and only then that we can appreciate what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. And this is where verse 4 comes in. That said, because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace we have been saved. A moment ago I was referring to Ezekiel's vision of God leaving the temple. But that wasn't the rest of the story. If you go 33 chapters into the future, in Ezekiel 43, the people repent. In Ezekiel chapter 10, you see a stepwise um, process of God leaving. He goes to the threshold, then he goes to the outer court, then he goes to a hill outside, and then it just seems that God disappears. But when there is repentance, the Spirit of the Lord instantly flooded back into the place. I'm going to share one more scripture from Ezekiel. And it's what God wants to do to everyone here, what God wants to do in our nation, what God wants to do even to the American church. It's one of my favorite prophetic scenes in all of the Bible. Its direct interpretation is Israel being reborn as a nation. But we also see what happens when people repent, when they turn back to God that God will rush back in and return and fill living creatures with the presence of God. And you see it in Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. It says that the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. I saw a great many bones in the back of the valley, and the bones were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as, as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them. And skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. May God do that in our time again. Because God's grace works like that. God's grace can do that again. His love and forgiveness can bring a people back from the dead and raise a huge army that will stand against the forces of hell and declare God's goodness upon this earth. If you've been around the church for a while, you may have heard several definitions for this term, grace. The proper theological answer, if you ever take Bible classes, is grace is the unmerited favor of God. That's a heady way of saying 
that you did nothing to earn God's forgiveness, blessing, or presence in your life. You contribute nothing toward grace. Because the Bible says that our acts of righteousness apart from God are as filthy rags, utterly worthless because it's sainted, or it's tainted with our sin nature. Therefore, God did it all through Christ. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he washed us white as snow. That's why it's a great acronym for grace is this. If you take the, each letter of the word grace, G, God, R, riches, A, at, C, Christ, E, expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That is what grace is for us. Christ paid the penalty for your sin. God said that the soul that sins must die. But Jesus was and is both God and man that took the penalty upon itself. The God part of himself being the infinite God and being big enough to carry all that sin, all that condemnation, all that rebellion, all that guilt upon himself. And the man identifying with us so he could be that second Adam the one who did the will of God and therefore can serve as our representative and savior and so God and make us completely righteous. Ephesians 2 through 8 is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no man can boast. So when you approach God's throne of grace, God's spirit rushes back in to the temple he has always desired, which is right here, your heart. Throughout history, we've built gigantic stone edifices of, and cathedrals trying to impress God. And if you look at their history, the vast majority of them were built upon taxing the poor to the brink of starvation. Even in the Bible, when you read about Solomon's temple, it was built upon, by taxing the people so bad that they went to his son when he died and demanded that they repeal these taxes because they were just being crushed under them. The fact is, is most people who build these huge buildings like that weren't looking to honor God, but to put some, their name on a huge building. But God never really wanted that. God wants our hearts. God wants our minds. He wants our souls. He wants our spirits. That is where the God of the universe has always wanted to dwell. I mean, why do we think that the God who spoke into nothing and created everything would be impressed by a building here on earth? a small minor little planet and a small minor little solar system in a galaxy that is just one of a billion different galaxies. Why do we think that that would be like being impressed by one grain of sand on the seashore? God wants you. He wants your heart. And yeah, he wants you. With all of your imperfections, with all your sin, with all your, your rebellion, with all your stubborn pride, He wants you. 
And he wanted you even when you were dead in trespasses and sin. And when a person accepts Jesus as Lord, God, Savior, and King, God declares, dead bones, hear the word of the Lord. Live. Live. Come back to life. Let me breathe life back into your spirit. God breathes that spirit into us so we become not only saved, but we become children of God. The Bible says that we're joint heirs with Christ, having the same authority and privileges as any child of a king. And that brings us to the last point in this section of Ephesians. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I think that the church in the last days is going to look very different than what we're used to. I've often said I've always had this feeling reading the Gospels and that according to Jesus' own teaching about the last days, and you see it in Luke 14, that God's call to, in the last days will be that to most or to people that most of us thought would never come to Christ. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus describes a wealthy landowner who invited people to a feast. He invited everybody who's on the who's who's list, the popular people, the rich people, the people who, who, who would want to come to this kind of an invitation. And that's most people today. But these people were so caught up in their lives that they didn't consider the kindness and goodness of God's offer to them. And the Bible says that the landowner became angry and ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. I think the last day's army would shock people of a hundred years ago. They might be full of tattoos. They might have huge piercings in their ears. They might have crazy hair. They're not going to be the nice, put-together church person we're used to. But you know what? They'll still be God's trophies of grace. They'll still be people who are brought from darkness into life. Verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I believe God is going to raise up an army in these last days. It might not be church as normal, but it's going to be a church He is involved in. He's going to reach people that will be just as messed up as they are, but they're still going to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb and sit next to us and be His trophies of grace. And God is putting out the call now. Come. Come as you are. Join Him in this great adventure and let your life matter now into eternity. Let's all rise. We're going to end in a song today um, that will be up on the screen. And as I was driving to Madison this week to take my final, my state nursing exam, 
I just thought how well it would fit with today's message. So we're going to sing this, and I would just um, ask you to be in prayer about how God can use you in these last days. Each one of us was called to the kingdom, to this time that we are in right now. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. So, Father, as we close with this song, I ask, Father, that you just call people into the ministry today. Not necessarily pastoral ministry standing in front of the church and teaching, but into the ministry you have prepared for them for this time. Help them not to look at a person with an upraised nose and say, oh, that person could never come. We don't know. Let us look at every person who is down and out and see a potential saint of God. Father, do this in our lives as we worship you this morning.